You may be seated. We're in Hebrews chapter 8. If you're just joining us, you guys online or in a Of all the places you could join in on Hebrews, I think Hebrews 8 is the most important part. Because the author, which is the Holy Spirit, by the way, and whatever human agency he wrote it through, because he begins to talk about the new covenant. And talking about the new covenant is one of the most important things you can talk about in the Bible. And I think this is what the author of Hebrews has been really trying to lead us to. This whole time he's been making point after point after point about the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament prophets and so on, in order that he might bring us to the discussion of this new covenant. And the reason... This is so important for us to look at in the word of God is because there's so much confusion in the body of Christ about the covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Where does the old covenant stop and where does the new covenant begin? And are there any elements of the old covenant in the new covenant? And there's been a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of challenges along the way. So you'll notice as he starts chapter 8, the first six verses, what he really is doing, he summarizes them of all the things he's been saying. Verse 1 tells us, now this is the main point. That's why it's a good place to get caught up of the things we are saying of all the points he's been making over the previous studies in Hebrews, the fact that Jesus, he's our new high priest. He says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand. It speaks of his authority. He sits down. He's resting. His job has been complete. Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Remember, he says in Psalms 110, Sit at my right hand, Jehovah says to Jesus Christ, until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. That will happen no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in society, no matter what's going on in your world. Jesus is in complete control. God speaking to his anointed one to the greater than David. He says in verse 2, a minister, I love this word, like to Gus. It's a public minister. You know, it's good to come to church. That's all good and well. But what pleases me, and I'm sure it pleases the Lord even more, when you begin to serve in his church. I'm so thankful that God put on uh, Hank's and Tanya's heart to, to step up and serve in the young adult ministry. We need that. Uh, while Savannah and Tyler is taking a break. We all go through those times, but I'm so excited that I didn't put it on their hearts. Pastor Jonathan didn't put it on their hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to prompt them about serving. The church is our tabernacle. And anyone who serves the church, the body of Christ, it's a humbling experience. Because really, you're, you're, you're showing yourself, you're, you're bare in front of everyone. They see your mistakes. And I hope when we do make mistakes, they know that we're trying to serve the Lord. We want to do the best we can. So I'm pleased that they're stepping up to do that. Same as Jesus, what he was doing in the earthly tabernacle. He says in verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices in heaven itself. Jesus brings that sacrifice, the sacrifice of blood, just like the Old Testament priest did. But his sacrifice, of course, is his own blood, once and for all, so powerful and potent to extinguish every drop of humanity's sin. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus Christ, also have something to offer. He makes the point in verse 4, if Jesus were a high priest, Pastor Jonathan had told us last Sunday, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, and we know they offered the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, he says, who serve on earth, the copy, it's only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, and this is God saying to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountains. Now, I never had the greatest memory anyway. And when I had the aneurysm, I have an excuse not to remember things these days. And I just, to think that Yahweh is speaking to Moses, and he says, make sure you make it exactly from what the pattern I showed you. That's humbling. I wonder, did Moses go down Sinai thinking, okay, he told me this. He said, make it like this. I better get somebody to help me. And all these things going through his mind and heart. But we know uh, Aloahab, I can't think of the other guy. The Bible says God anointed them with special giftings to serve and to build the tabernacle. So God never, if you ever start a ministry, if you ever, whatever ministry you're doing here, God always brings people along that has your heart to help. So Moses is in pretty confidence in this. And he says that in Exodus 25. Remember Jesus' earthly lineage, he's from Judah. And no one from the tribe of Judah could be a priest. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. So he's making all these points, but he's doing it just to lead us, as the first verse says, to the main point. He's been saying all that he's been saying. He talked about Melchizedek, Jonathan did, how that's the line, not, not, not the uh, ancestral line, but that's the type of Jesus, the high priest he will be, because the tribe of Levi, all the priests had to come through anyway. So he begins to tell us about this in verse 6. But now he has obtained 
a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. I don't know about you, but I like the word better. I love riding my bike. And now I have a better bike. And believe me, it's way better. And I enjoy that. So when God begins to say through Jeremiah, this old covenant, I'm going to give you something. It's going to be better. It's going to be better for you in every way. He means it. In the gospel of Luke, Luke 22, as he's partaking, Jesus is partaking in the last supper with his disciples. He tells them that the wine that they're drinking represents his blood, that this is for the new covenant that he's inaugurating in his preaching on earth, in his ministry on earth. So he's starting to break away from this Sinai covenant because the newer and better covenant will soon be sealed with his death on the cross because there's, there must be a death and a will for it to be established. There must be someone for the will to come to effect. Hebrews has told us there must be a death. That will be the Messiah. This is the meat of everything the writer of Hebrews has been talking about, this chapter here. And what we're going to be talking about, the superiority of the covenant that Jesus inaugurated in the Last Supper versus the covenant that was inaugurated through Moses in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And the writer of Hebrews, he's making a blunt point here. He's saying, guys, the new covenant is way better. If you want to sit and compare covenants, there's no comparison. Once again, I'll use a sports analogy. Now, the young bucks, the new guys, they won't agree with me with this statement I'm about to make. The old guys, they will agree with me because there's no way, in my opinion, you can even start to compare LeBron James with Michael Jordan of who's the best. In basketball, it's a no-brainer to me. It's Michael Jordan. (laughs) We'll talk about that later. Well, the new covenant is way better than the old covenant. The new is just that far greater. And then at the end of verse 6, he cites one of the reasons that the new covenant is superior. It was established on better promises. So what are we talking about here? Well, we dealt with some of the stuff in our past studies. What was the promises in the old covenant, remember? The Mosaic Mosaic covenant. What was those promises? Think back with me. You go through and you read the Old Testament book like Deuteronomy. It's a great book to read to remind yourselves of all of those promises. God promised them that they would be blessed in the land that their enemies would not be able to stand against them, that the rains would fall in seasons, the sun would shine, the crops would grow, their children would be strong and free, and there would be peace in the land, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at all of those promises, you think those are pretty nice promises, and they are. 
good promises, nothing wrong with them. But you also notice, and this is what I want you to see, something else about all of these promises, that they are given to the Jews in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. They're all just for this life. That's what all of those promises he gave for. It was for here and now, for the life on earth. A lot of Christians, they don't realize that, that the old covenant made no provision for eternity. They're all here right now on the earth. Now, the Jews, they really got this mixed up. They started by the time Jesus touched down on the earth, they were fully convinced that heaven was attainable by keeping the law. God never promised that. He never told them they'd go to heaven if they kept the law. You have to understand that. That wasn't one of the covenant promises. You can go back to Deuteronomy, read it for yourself. He never said, keep this, be obedient to me, and you'll go to heaven. So the old covenant doesn't even deal with that, doesn't make any provision for it. And that is why the writer of Hebrews who goes on to say in verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless. Now, what was the fault of the law? Nothing wrong with the law. Paul tells us that. The problem was we can't keep it. Then no place would have been sought for a second. And that tells us that the old covenant was never meant to last forever. And it was never meant to cover all the bases. It wasn't meant to, and how do we know? We know that because through Jeremiah, when he goes on to quote here, we'll talk about that in a minute, God begins to speak of the new covenant in Jeremiah, that there's coming a new covenant. That means he's planning on replacing the old and that the old didn't get the job fully done. It was meant to, it, but it could not do it because of man's inability to keep it. Verse 8 tells us, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is only because of Israel called to be the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm not choosing you Hebrews, I'm not choosing you Jews because you're the, the best, you're the greatest, you're all of this. He says, I'm choosing you because you're the least, and I want you to be a priest and tell the entire world about the coming Messiah. That's your job. We know they fell short of that. And so God says, I'm opening this up to everyone. And from this point forward, through verse 12 or so, he's going to quote a prophecy that is given to us in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That's what the author of Hebrews is quoting here as he's talking about this new covenant because he wanted them to know God foretold of this new covenant years before he wanted them to know this was always a part of his plan. Nothing takes God by surprise. So we're gonna do, what we're gonna do here, we're going to kind of look at what he's been saying about the old covenant and the new covenant and what makes the new covenant so much better. 
I want you to look again at verse 8. It says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, that's the first thing we notice other than the fact that he has a new covenant coming. He says it's going to be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that basically just means the whole two kingdoms. You know, this can kind of rub Christians the wrong way. People can get off track easily when God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I tell you guys all the time, I used to go to this Messianic Jewish fellowship. That's how I got my feet really wet in the scriptures. But the rabbi of that fellowship, after we had sat under him for about three years, he came to me one day and he says, hey, look, the promise of the new covenant does not affect you, Victor, because you're a Gentile. And me sitting under this rabbi and knowing he knew the word, the only reason I disagreed with him is because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And when he told me that, the Holy Spirit just pushed me, and he said, this is not correct. This is not true. And I said, hey, I understand what you think, but I don't agree with that. God just didn't come to save the Jew. He came to save everyone. I know that much about the Bible. So this is really, this message really grips me. Because if I wouldn't have had solid footing just to know the kindness and goodness of God, that he wouldn't come and save one group of people and leave everybody else, say, defend for yourself, that couldn't be right. So I begin to search the scriptures. <laughs> Truth be told, that was our last time going there that, that Sunday. And uh, it, it just hit me wrong. And I knew it was the Holy Spirit prompted me. So I was searching the scriptures and, and all these things. And then once again, he brought scriptures to me to show me. I don't care if it came from this rabbi. My word is true. And God has come to save everybody. And this what this scripture here, this, this, these passages are speaking about. Jesus is the gift of God for every human in the world. God had foretold he was going to make a new covenant with Israel without going into much of the history. Jeremiah has spoken these words as God was restoring the Jews after, remember, they're, they're coming back from Babylon. They're 70 years in Babylon. The new experience of return demanded a new approach in God dealing with his people. The demands of the time called for a new covenant. The question is, why doesn't he say in here he's going to make a new covenant with the church? And the reason is the church doesn't appear in the Old Testament. It's inferred, the assumptions are made sometimes, but there is nowhere specifically mentioned in the Old Testament anything about the church. Ephesians tells us the church 
is a mystery. So the next logical question is, how do we know this new covenant applies to us? I mean, maybe we're accepting something that was never intended for us to accept. I mean, I'm a Gentile. I don't know about you, but I know I embrace the new covenant. I'm asking the question this morning, is it mine to embrace? Is it yours to embrace? Well, yes, it is. No doubt about it. The scripture says it. And there are many Bible passages that outline this. From the jump, I'll give you an Old Testament passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 6. He says, now God speaking to Abram, now the Lord has said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who, who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, here it is, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians chapter three clears it up a little bit more. Verses 15 through 18, Paul says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it, even a man's covenant. Now to Abraham and his seed, that's a capital S, where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. There it is. He comes. Jesus wants the whole entire humanity to accept him as, their, as his personal Lord and Savior. You got Christ, you have it all. And this I say that the law, which was 437 years later, so once again, the promise comes first. And God is not a man that he should lie or that he should repent of his sins. That's what the Bible says. The promise comes first, and then here comes the commandments. And he says, 437 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect, cannot touch that promise. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of a promise. I'm so glad of that. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now we go, if we go to the New Testament, to a wonderful prophecy given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, he says in John 10, 16, speaking to his disciples, he says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, this sheepfold, speaking of Israel, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That one flock and one shepherd will be made of Jew and Gentile. Paul makes that very clear. But the apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, actually taught the same thing. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings, there it is, the blessings of Abraham passed down to the Jews, of course, might come upon the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, the key 
Just, for, just like the Jew, the key is you must be in Christ Jesus. I don't care if you're a Jew or not. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, if he's the savior of all mankind, well, you're not going to a good place. Upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive, here it is, the promise of the spirit through faith. If we have the spirit, no doubt we are born again. And then Paul went on to write about it in Romans chapter 11, verses 13, and then 17 through 18, Paul says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I like that. And if some of the branches were broken off, and he's speaking about the unbelieving Jews here who rejected their Messiah, and you Gentiles being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and now sharing in the nourishment, the root of the olive tree, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Paul, using the language of the arborist here, to help us to understand that we Gentiles have been grafted into the root. The worship team sang a song. I heard the lyrics, the root of Jesse. That's Jesus Christ. We've been grafted in alongside the natural branches, which were lopped off. So these are verses, and there are many more which make reference to the fact that we as Gentiles are able to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Now look at verse 9. He's going to begin to define this new covenant. And again, he's still, he's quoting Jeremiah 31 here. He says, concerning the new covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day. I love this. When I took them by the hand, that speaks of intimacy. That speaks of closeness. That tells me when they were in bondage and the taskmaster's whip was on their backs, that God, Yahweh, was right there seeing all of that, and he's going to do something about it. And he took them by the hand, and he leads them out of Egypt. To lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. So he's telling us very clearly here that the new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. You've heard me say this many times, and it's such an important thing. He wants, to, wants us to see in the word of God. The new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. This is really important. We need to see this. I've said this many of times, but before... 2,000 years before the new covenant comes, Christians have misunderstood this idea. And they've tried to cram the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the new covenant. And you can't do that in order to make it work. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 9, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. 
the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. They put new wine into new wineskin and both are preserved. The church does not fit in the old covenant. The church is entirely new dynamic and that's because of grace. And that's what he's saying here. And all along, God prophesied hundreds of years before the time of Christ. He knew he was going to do this, that the new covenant wouldn't be like the old covenant. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, how is the new covenant different from the old covenant? We've already made the mention of the fact that the old covenant was made and given. It was a physical covenant with physical promises. You remember the old covenant, it even had a physical sign. You had to be circumcised. And so this physical covenant with a physical sign, but also what came along were the physical promises. The land, I will defeat your enemies. I will provide your food, your safety, right, your world. That's not the new covenant. That's not the covenant that we have with God, by the way. Do you know that God never promised we'd have great crops here? God never promised us that we would make 400000 a year here. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> Maybe some of you do. That's just his grace. God never promised us we'd have money to splurge on things. And I guarantee you, most of us here, we do. That's called grace. He never promised us that our enemies wouldn't overwhelm us from the standpoint of physical enemies. Never gave that promise, not to the church. I want you to understand this. Our promises are different from the old covenant. Paul outlines them in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every physical blessing. I don't think he says that. Don't shake your head. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where are they? On earth? No, in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's the difference. I mean, that's one of the differences, but it's an enormous difference. And if you don't get it, we're going to give into things like the health and wealth gospel, that doctrine that sweeps through the church every few decades and makes it all about me and what I have in this life and how much money I'm making and what kind of car I drive or the kind of house I live in, all of that junk. That's not the blessing that God promised us under the new covenant. Secondly, the terms of the, new, of the two covenants are very different. Let me just say, tell you, what I mean when I'm talking about these terms. You know, if you go buy a car, it's, you have to sign almost as many pages as when you buy a house. But you're signing all of these documents. When you finish your, your hand is sore, you, you, the, the nice signature by the time you sign, 
you can't even understand what you're writing at the end. You're buying this. And you have to sign all of these documents for it. You make payments, installments for this long period of time. And then as you're borrowing the money and you're making the payments, then all of a sudden you go get that title. That's when that property, that's when that car is yours. So when you think of terms, think of you do this and we'll do that. So now let's think about the terms of the old covenant. What were the terms? God said, if you keep my law, if you be obedient and walk in my ways and worship me and no other God, and here's what I will do. You do this, I'll do that. That's the old covenant. You walk in obedience, I'll bless you in the land. You walk in obedience, your enemies won't be able to stand. You walk in obedience, I'll give you great crops. You walk in obedience, you will live in peace. Those are the terms. Obedient promises. But the new covenant, don't get it twisted. Remember what I say about the new covenant. It's not like the old covenant. It's not a covenant, listen closely, of obedience. The new covenant is expressed in this way. Here it, here it goes. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here comes the terms that whoever believes in him, that's what we do. What he does, he says, that person who believes in me will not perish. Not a cessation of being, but a well-being, but have everlasting life. Those are the terms. By the way, I'm glad I'm not under the old covenant because the new covenant is not like the old covenant. The new covenant, the terms of the new covenant is believe. Read your Bible. That's what it says. But I want you American Christians to listen closely and understand. We think believe means something like, I believe that Jesus was really real. It's a mental assent. So we hear people say, whoever believes, and we go, I believe in God. And he's not speaking of that. The word believe in biblical terms or perspective, mean to put your complete trust and total confidence in, to hope in Jesus Christ and what Jesus did on the cross as enough to save you, as enough to save me from our sins. Whoever does that, he says, will not perish, but will have eternal life. Those are the terms, and I agree, they are great terms. With terms like those, I'm going to say it. You would think, Jesus, you're a shyster. <laughs> Come on, y'all know it. With terms like those, the old covenant says, if I do this, if I do that, if I do this, if I do that, then he'll bless me. 
But the new covenant comes and says, if I believe, if I put my weight, if I put my trust, if I put my confidence in Jesus Christ, once again, it's not a mental thing. It's a heart thing. Because if I mean it in my heart, I will begin to walk differently than I used to. That's what he's saying. Paul caught a lot of trouble by preaching a gospel of grace. Ephesians 2.8 tells us this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He's expressing the terms right there. The terms are faith. You put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you will be saved. And then he says, in case you didn't get it or you can't believe it, check Ephesians out. He says it again, one, another line. He, he says the complete thing again. He's setting it apart from the old covenant, which was of their own doing. Your obedience, no. He says, not so. It's not about your obedience. This time around, it's not of your own doing. It's a gift, not by works, meaning works of righteousness. Lest anyone should boast, he goes on to say. There's no boasting in heaven. No one will be in heaven saying, hey, I made it here on my own. I did everything right. Lord, aren't you glad I'm here? Slide over, let me sit on your throne. (laughs) Not going to happen. We all know when we get there, it's only because of grace through faith in in the person of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing left less than Jesus Christ, his righteousness. That's what it's about. Because I put my faith in what Jesus did because he did it right and I received him as my savior. So you can see here that when we talk about the terms of the covenant, one covenant is based on obedience. What do you do? And the other one is based on what Jesus did and putting your faith and hope and confidence in what he did. It's not a covenant of obedience. I know that really can play with some people's minds when I say that. In fact, some people, they get so upset, I'll be getting an Instagram post about this for the people who are watching. Spurgeon, I think it was Spurgeon says, when you preach When you're going through Romans, and really through the Bible, but he was speaking of Romans. He says, when you're going through Romans, you should preach grace so much that people will say, but what about works? Or what about, I can't believe it's just of grace. And if you don't preach grace like that, you haven't preached it well enough. That's exactly what it is. Now, we have to remember what Titus says, the, the grace of God that, that, that we receive teaches us to obey the Lord and do the righteous things and all of those things. But we're talking about the, new, the two different covenants here. I'll let the Lord clean those up, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. They said the same thing about the Apostle Paul. They said, Paul, you can't say that. People will go bananas if you say things like that. If you tell them that salvation is free, it's a free gift, they won't walk up right. 
That's what they were telling Paul. He says in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, certainly not. Absolutely not. What a ghastly thought, Moffat says. No. Titus tells us grace is there to help us walk correctly. The grace of God has come to all men teaching us to walk properly in this age that we live in. That's what grace is for. We have to understand that the grace of God is stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the grace of God is stained with. It costs him everything for me to say, no, I'm not going to do it this time. I'll get back with you tomorrow. That costs him his blood to do that. So we take walking in obedience rightly. It's important. But I'm telling you about the new covenant. It's all of grace. That's what the Bible says. When we come to Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to rearrange the furniture in our lives. If it took, if you were sincere, he will not let you stay the same. And he starts to change how we think and how we feel and how we act. And he begins to do a work of transformation in our lives from the inside And Paul knew that, but the legalists, they will never understand it because they have to, a legalist always have to have rules and they're not comfortable living life without rules. And there's a gravitational pull to have rules around you to keep you in the right way. The covenant of grace says, hey, mm, I can't think of that. Mm. It was one of the church fathers. He says some of his parishioners came to him and, and he asked them, how, we're believers now, how should we live? He said, love the Lord Jesus Christ and do whatever you want. The key is loving him. Because Jesus says, if you love me, You will keep my commands, one translation says. Another says, if you love me, you will obey me. So that's what grace does. That's what grace instructs us to do. We don't need rules. The the, the Bible is for us to, this is what the Bible is for, is as we're walking with the Lord and we read his word and says, oh, I, I did that. I'm doing that. I got to be careful with this, but I'm doing that. So the Bible really confirms our walk. That's what the scriptures are for because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's what it's for. It's a natural byproduct of being grafted into Christ. I believe we need to obey God, no doubt about it. And I believe obedience is an important part of the believer's life. All I'm saying is, it's not the term of the covenant. 
That's all I'm saying. I'm saying you should be obedient, but you're not saved. Listen closely. You're not saved by your obedience. That's a byproduct of being in Jesus Christ. He wants you to obey, but it's not going to save you. It's going to make your life better if we obey, when we obey the Lord. You're not going to be so miserable living this life, being a Christian and, and, and living like an unbeliever. You can't do that for very long. So it's still important. It's just not going to save you. Jeremiah 31, he continues in verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. We'll stop right there. You see, it's God's work now. He's going to put his law in our minds. He's going to put his law in our heart. What does that mean? It means that God is going to express his will in our lives. And as I submit, my life to him, God expresses his will for my life by putting the desires in my heart to do that which he wants done. He puts it into my mind to do something. Now, that hasn't come to pass yet for the nation of Israel. For the church, it has, but not for the nation of Israel as a whole. God says here, after those days, what does he mean by after those days? Something he's talking about after the great tribulation. When God, Jesus Christ comes back and he puts an end to all of uh, Israel's enemies and all of the world's enemies and all of those things, everyone then the Jews will come to know the Lord. That's what he means here. That's not for them yet. This is for the church, though. We, we live under the new covenant. The church is under the new covenant, but Israel, they won't come under that as a nation until the Messiah comes back when Jesus returns. At that time, that's when every nation and the Jews will know him. The prophecy of Jeremiah was written to the Jews. We have to understand that. To Israel again. The church doesn't appear in the Old Testament. I think it was Chuck Smith who said, the reason, the prophecies of God is like you're on two mountains. The beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelations. And in that valley is the church. And the church is called, we live in the days of grace. That's why it's so hard for the Jew. They think there has to be two Messiahs. Because this Messiah, with all this power and all this knowledge and all this, everything he is, he would never die. You're a loser when you die. That's what you think. But no, Jesus gives his life so they can only see the two peaks of the mountain. And this part of the valley, they can't get it because it's the days of grace. That's what the church lives in, that new covenant, the days of grace. And so he's speaking here. The writer of Hebrews is speaking 
to the Jewish crowd here. So he's trying to get them to understand. Paul actually, he's the one who records 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. We say it every first Sunday. He says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We don't wait until after those days. We're in the new covenant. Right here, right now, it's a wonderful, glorious thing to be in the new covenant. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, we can tell him our cares. We can go to him and speak to him anytime we want to. I like to just pour my heart out to Jesus. We were speaking in the men's studies about prayer yesterday. It's so vital. It's so important. And yet, we don't do it enough. God is infinite. And I don't know about you, but when I'm speaking to someone, I like for them to give me their undivided attention. I don't like speaking to someone and they're turning around and seeing what's going on and doing all that. (laughs) I'll stop speaking. God is never like that. Don't ever think he's like that. Because when you speak to him, he gives you his undivided attention. Everybody in the world, because he's infinite, and they're pouring in, hopefully, with prayers and thoughts. Lord, what's going to happen about this? And what's going to happen to my kid? And what's going to happen to me? And he's, I want you to understand, he's giving you his undivided attention. He's giving you his heart as you tell him your cares and your wants and your needs and what you're worried about and all those things. He's not thinking, oh, what's going to happen? What am I going to have for supper today? Some more carrot cake? And not gain any weight. No, he's not doing that. That's the God we serve. And that's what this writer is trying to say. Tell him those things. He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is a prophetic foretelling of the coming of the Holy Spirit right here, which is a great blessing for us, the believer. In the Old Testament, we know that nobody, the Holy Spirit never went inside of one person in the Old Testament. They would come upon Epi, a person for a while, Gideon, David. Remember when David blew it and had that affair with Bathsheba? And he says this poignant prayer. He was worried. After he was found out, he said, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He had never been, the Holy Spirit had never been inside of David. But David had felt his presence upon him sometimes. And David didn't even want his presence, the upponness, to be away from him. Well, that can't happen. That can't happen in the new covenant. The promises, I think it's in Romans, it says the promises of God are irrevocable. Some translations might say the promises of God are are unrepentant. He doesn't give and take away. That's why in chapter 5, when we were talking about apostasy, 
That's when you say, I'm through with you, God. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for me. Jesus Christ is not the savior of all men. That's two different things. The prodigal son, show you what I'm talking about. The prodigal son said, when he was sitting or lying or whatever he was doing beside that pig pen, what does it say? The Bible says when he came to himself. That's when he got up and went back home. And everything was fine. That's the new covenant right there. We should walk in obedience. We have the power to walk in obedience. But we're saved. Listen to what I'm saying. We're saved by grace through faith. If I wasn't online and was just talking to a few people, this is satisfying to my soul because I've did funerals before where kids started walking sideways for three or five years and the mama would always say, I remember, I remember when they gave their lives to the Lord and when they did this and when they did that, Pastor Jonathan, you can attest to this, And that's their promise. And whether they know it, they're theologically sound in that. They're sound in that. Should we? No doubt about it, we should walk in obedience. We have the ability to walk in obedience. But the new covenant and the old covenant is like night and day. It shows the graciousness of God. And because of his graciousness, we should live for the Lord. That's all I'm saying here. He says this, verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his his brothers saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now I want you to be careful here because if you read this verse, you don't think about it. You're saying, well, Why is Pastor Victor standing up here? (laughs) Or why does Pastor Jonathan stand up here? Ephesians 4.11 says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He's not talking about intellectual knowing here. That's what I do to help to help you see something more clearly, help, hopefully not to confuse you, help to see things more clearly, poignant things like that. But it's not experientially knowing. I cannot do that. I cannot help anyone do that. That's only God himself, the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12 God says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's a gracious God. I can't. (laughs) I'm going to say it anyway. I cannot put verse 12 over anyone. With my track record, 
One of my favorite verses is when David is being punished by the Lord and the Lord comes to him and says, hey, David, uh, you, you blew it and uh, you got to get punished for it because you're my child. And Hebrews is going to say, I punish all those I love. So uh, take your pick. You want me to send this group on you? You want me to send this group on you? Or you want me to discipline you? And David, know, he, he knows what I know and probably what all you know. Nuh-uh. I don't want man to discipline me. I want God to discipline me. I want you to do it because I know, he says, I know you're merciful. I know you're merciful, God. No matter when the discipline comes, when the spanking comes, I know it's a loving hand. I know that experientially with my track record. When I paid SR-22, is that what it's called, baby? <laughs> See, she gets, <laughs> she, she gets embarrassed. I don't get embarrassed. It's a testimony for me because we were paying big money to drive a vehicle, about $800 for insurance, and we paid it for three years. And then I, and I may have told this story before, and then I go to court, perfect track record because I'm born again, and I was going to the Messianic Jewish Fellowship and, and ministering and singing, and this guy, my probation officer, I never had anything but speak kind words of him. And he, for some reason, he wanted to put me back in jail and would have put me back in jail. I was standing in court. You were at work. And Lord and behold, this guy, wealthy guy who went to church with us, he says, no, I'll, I'll pay his fine. Paid my fine. When I talked to him, he says, you don't have to worry about that anymore. He says, and I'm going to give you some more money, and I want you to go buy your wife something. True. And I went home and I bought her something and went home. That's nothing but the graciousness of God. That's why David says, I don't want man to judge me. Man, don't forget. You can slip up one time, and man does not forget. I'm here to tell you. We serve a gracious God. That's why I love him. That's why I love him that will not remember our sins. Now, how can God forget? God cannot forget. He chooses to forget. He chooses not to remember. He chooses to say, Gabe, I remember when you messed up, but I'm not going to bring it up. That's, that's the God I serve. That should make us want to walk with him. He loves us, you guys. That's why he gave us the new covenant. That's why we can hold on to Jesus Christ, who is the new covenant. That's why when things are going wrong in our lives and we don't like in circumstances and situations, we have to remember that we serve a loving God. And he always does things for our best interest. And it might not look like it. We might not like what comes down the pipe. I did not like it when my dad passed away. But I know I serve a loving God. I know I serve a loving God. 
I don't know if you've lost a loved one. All of us probably have. But don't ever, I always say, don't ever let that diminish God. He's good. He's good. To establish a new covenant like he implemented. He wants us all in the kingdom with him. Put your trust, put your faith, put all that you have in Jesus Christ. That's all he's asking for. And we'll begin to walk if we love him. We'll begin to walk like him. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Verse 13, In that he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Out of order. It's not in use anymore. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. (laughs) I laughed because I I just stayed on that verse right there. And I said, Lord, are you talking to me there? This is what I, this is how, this is my mind. He says, in what, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete, growing old, that hit me. But he's so good because he's telling me is ready to vanish away. That's me. That's my life. God is so good. I tell you all the time, when I first saw that first gray hair in my head, I plucked it out. And then a week later, it was two more. And then I stopped counting. It was three more. And so I shaved my head, but it's not growing anyway. So I'm just, I'm just a mess. But God is so good, you guys. He cares about us. He has to care to implement this new covenant. It's, it's truly a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. It's better. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's better. Why go back to the old? You guys don't go back to the old. God loves us. Worship team can come up. I'm blown away by his love. I'm blown away that when I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for my daughter, Lord, when are you going to save her? Lord, when are you going to do this? Lord, when, Lord, I, I want to save. I want to see her saved. I, I want to be able to talk about the Lord with her. There's no greater joy, John says, to know that your children is walking with the Lord. And I hear people still say, when I talk about Erica, yeah, I want them saved, but I don't want them to have to do it this way. I don't want them to have to suffer this. I don't want them to Shoot. I love her and I want her saved. And when I can get with her and sit down with her and we're talking about the Lord, oh, it just blesses my heart. She won't tell me, but she tells Lydia sometimes, Mama, I'm I'm just tired. And then here comes the tears, but she still gets up and does the things she has to do. And like I told you before, even when she says things like that, the last thing she says in that sentence, but God is good. 
there's no greater joy. He's implemented this new covenant for humanity. He wants us to be a part of his family. He loves us right where we're at, and he cares for you, and he knows what's going on in your life, and we can depend on him. He knows when we're sad, when we're at the bottom, when we're we're just, Lord, just take me home. And he says, no, 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 I've got more for you. You're going to make it through. You're going to pull through. I'm the author and I'm the finisher of your salvation. Just trust me. There's going to be brighter days ahead. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the covenant, the new covenant of grace that you knew you were going to institute, establish from the foundations of the world because you love humanity. And all you require is that humanity places their confidence, their trust, their hope, They put all of their weight on Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then if we truly do that, the outpouring, the outsharing of that is living a life for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Salvation truly begins and ends with you, Father. Thank you for your covenant of grace. May we never judge anyone because I heard someone sharing this yesterday. We don't know what's going on in a person's life. That's only between the God of the universe and that person. Lord, you've given us the easy job. You've given us the job to love people. Love them in spite of themselves. Love them because that's how you've treated us. Lord, I pray for people right now that's going through things, that's going to go through things, Lord, that they would run to the foot of the cross, that they would remember that you loved them and you've spilled your blood for them. And all they have to do is hold on to you because you love them more than they do. And you care for them, Lord. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.